listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen, that was beautiful. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Brad. Glad you're here. Mark chapter 14, let's go. We are coming down to the final few messages in our in really almost, I guess, over a year now, journey through the Gospel of Mark. I think we'll finish it up by the end of September. And then, uh, I think we're going to start First Peter after that. Generally, we like to alternate between Testaments, but First uh, Peter, I think, has just a rich, uh, really motley group of truths that would be very very helpful for us as a congregation right now, I think. And so we're going to look at that beautiful letter um, from Peter. And so if you want to get a head start and start reading through that, that'd that'd be great. But that'll be another month and a half or so. So today we find ourselves in in Mark chapter 14. And we're going to look at the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, you can find Mark chapter 14 on page 850. And as is our custom, usually we celebrate communion to, together as a congregation on the first Sunday of the month, but we, we actually moved it to this Sunday because the text that we're looking at is, is about uh, this, this Last Supper, this last Passover, or in this transition time between the Testaments, this last Passover meal pointing forward to communion that we now celebrate as Christians in the New Covenant. And so we thought it would be helpful for us to receive the Lord's Supper as we, as we teach on it. So uh, my plan is, is to read us a, a lengthy text for me to read through this and, and really to settle down on two points that I think are absolutely essential for us to understand about Jesus' work on the cross. So um, let me pray and then, uh, then we'll, we'll get into the text. Father, thank you for your, your kindness to us. Uh, those beautiful songs that we, sung, we just sang together. That you are good to us. That you carry us. That, that, Lord, you will not forsake your people. That you are a firm foundation. Help us now see and behold these beautiful truths in your word. I pray today as we look at this meal that points to the cross and for us points back to the cross that Christians in this room their hearts would be softened and their affections would be stirred so that we can behold and see and savor Jesus more clearly and for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ Lord I pray that you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe and trust in Jesus. That Jesus would be so beautiful today as they see him in these scriptures that that you would capture their hearts and give them life in his name. Help us now, I pray, for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was 24 years ago in the fall of 1989, and I was a plebe at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. 
And like every other plebe, I had to take plebe boxing. I see evidently a couple of young West Point graduates there that went through that same experience snickering. It, whether you want to do it or not, you have to do it, and you have to get in the ring at least four times and square off with one of your classmates. So you have four bouts. I won my first two bouts, and so I was sort of feeling my oats a little bit, feeling kind of proud of myself. And <laughs> on my third uh, boxing match bout, I faced off with this little Italian kid from Brooklyn. And I don't mean Italian in a derogatory way because I share that ethnic heritage. My dad's side is Italian. And I thought maybe being, you know, a paisan, this guy might show me a little mercy. I think he was the, the, the Burrow Golden Glove champion. He was built like a fire hydrant. He had fists of stone. And it is amazing how long three minutes can be when you're getting pummeled in the face by Rocky Marciano's grandson or whoever this kid was. And this Department of Physical Education instructor who was a less than amiable individual, like most of the Department of Physical Instruction uh, people were, used to have this rag that I think he would dip in, you know, ammonia as a kind of smelling salt to jerk you back into reality when you were getting pummeled in the face. And needless to say, um, I had to sniff that rag a few times after that bout. I mean, I got beat up. And you know, life can sort of do that to you, can it? I mean, just, it can just, it can be like body blows and just shots to the head. And it is amazing how cloudy even your vision can be when you're getting hit in the head, not only physically, but also spiritually. And the reason, one of the many reasons, not the reason, but one of the reasons that the Lord tells us as his people to take this meal that we're going to take this morning, as often as you gather, to do it again and again, is because this meal for Christians is like, it's like smelling salts. It's like ammonia. It, as we're getting hit in the face by the world, our flesh, and the devil, which are constantly beating on us, this meal is like a head-clearing aroma so that we can see Jesus rightly. And so let's read about this meal in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, remember we talked about last week that in Exodus chapter 12, right there on the edge of Moses, God through Moses delivering uh, his people, the, the nation of Israel from Egyptian captivity, he tells Moses to institute this this Passover meal and this feast of unleavened, of unleavened bread, and that meal signifies when the angel of the Lord passed over all of the houses of the Jewish people who had the blood of the lamb put on the doorposts of their, of their door, and God would pass over them and not kill the firstborn son of every house that had the blood on the doorpost. And so then um, God tells Moses to then 
do this feast yearly to remember God's saving work where he passed over the Jews and their households that had the door on the, the, the blood on the doorpost. And so that's what they're doing now for generations and generations, for hundreds of years, the Jews would gather to remember this saving moment when God rescued his people from Egypt. And as important and as real and as significant as that rescue was of Israel out of Egypt in Exodus, ultimately that is pointing forward to a greater rescue, which is Jesus' rescue of his people, not just Jew, but whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Jew and Gentile. Ultimately, that meal of the Passover lamb is pointing forward to the lamb Jesus on the, throne, on the cross where he will literally shed his blood, and that's what this meal points to. Remember, we talked about that from the Old Testament last week. So when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you go and where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room and where, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. So that seems kind of strange, doesn't it? And it actually reminds me a lot of what happened in Mark chapter 11. Remember at the beginning of the Passion Week where Jesus tells a couple of his disciples, go into the city and you'll find a donkey in the sky. And, and so what, what is happening here with these? And we'll, we'll settle down on this point in a second. But these sort of unusual, seemingly kind of unnecessary instances where Jesus is telling his disciples to go do something and this is what's going to happen and you're going to meet this guy with a bottle of water and then he, you follow him and tell him to go into this house. It seems kind of well, random, that's strange. What's happening there is Jesus is showing his disciples and readers through the ages that even in the most chaotic of events, even as we're approaching his, his crucifixion, he is in utter control of everything. Let's keep reading in verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the, son of, for, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Of course, he's speaking of Judas there, and we know specifically that he's speaking of Judas, because not only does Judas betray him, but we know that Jesus knows that it's specifically Judas because it records that in some of the other Gospels. And then it says this haunting statement about Judas in verse 21. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Okay, so before we get into the meal here, I want, to, I want us to just notice a couple things here. Two, two truths, I think, that, that really stand out. I don't have them up on the screen, but if you maybe want to write these down, it might be helpful to you. One, I want you to see that Jesus is in total control. 
even in the most chaotic of weeks, Jesus is in total control of the events leading up to his crucifixion at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish Sanhedrin. And yet, we also see that Judas is responsible and makes a decision to betray Jesus. And so here in this text, it's not just narrative, it's not just the recording of events that happen, but I think that clearly the Holy Spirit, through Mark, is, is wanting to show us something. That God is in utter and total control, even of the most chaotic event in the history of the world, the most sinful event in the history of the world, where the creation killed the creator. And yet, even though God, Jesus, God in the flesh, is in total control of that, man still is responsible and sins and makes a decision to betray God. So, so here's just some application, I think, for us, because we can sort of let that float in like a 30,000-foot sort of huge doctrinal category. God is in control. I'm responsible. These things seem to be difficult to mesh together. But let's, let's, let's sort of apply these to our lives. What is the most chaotic? Here's a question for you. What is the most chaotic and out-of-control thing going on in your life right now? Just think about it. The most chaotic, the most stressful, the most anxious thing going on in your life right now. Jesus is in complete control of that thing. Do you believe that? I believe that. But let me confess something to you. And this may absolutely, hopefully, undermine your faith or encourage you. I don't know which way. I hope it encourages you. But as I confess that, can I also confess that does anybody else struggle to believe that? I mean, even as I say that, and sometimes as I'll be up here preaching some glorious truth out of the Scripture about the greatness of God and the, 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 the glory of God, I will have to beat back this inner voice in me that just says, yeah, but, you know, what about, what about this situation? Ah, uh, but, you know, what, nah, yeah, maybe, but nah, that doesn't really apply to you. Does anybody else feel that way, or am I just the only horrible Christian in the crowd? Is, okay. <laughs> okay, good. I'm strangely encouraged by this the affirmation that I'm getting from you right now. So when we read something like Jesus being in total control of every little aspect, even of the most horrific and chaotic event in the history of the world, don't just let that float out there as some sort of interesting little thing in the scriptures, but, but bring that, grab that truth, man. Grab it and bring it down into your life and say, Jesus, right now I know and I confess, even though I am weak, even though I don't see everything, even though I can't necessarily see how all things are going to fit together, even though my, my view and my perception and my vision spiritually isn't limited, Jesus, I trust because I see it in your word that you are in control for my good of everything that happens to me. And for my good doesn't necessarily mean that it works out the way I want it to. Friends, this is a, I think this is a bedrock 
of, of what it means to be a Christian, to be able to trust in Christ this way. And then another application that I think we see in this is that, that, we, see, that we see Judas. It's a sobering figure. He walked with and ministered with Jesus for three years, yet he chose to betray Jesus. That's sobering. When I read scriptures like that, I, I, am, I am confident that I am trusting in Christ, but when I read scriptures like that, I want those scriptures to push on me to keep me in Christ. I, I, listen, I, I believe, as sure as I'm standing here today, in the beautiful doctrine of the eternal security of believers. But I think one of the ways that God keeps his people secure is by causing them to read the warnings and scriptures and that keeps me in the love of Christ through the means of his word that should press on me. So Jesus is in control and I must continue to walk with him. Let's continue. Verse 22. Into the meal now. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Okay, there's two things I want you to see in this, in this meal, and we'll settle down on this and then we'll end. In fact, we'll just go ahead and put them up there. I want you to see two things about Jesus' death. One is that Jesus' death was a substitutionary sacrifice. I know that's a big word, a very important word. Jesus' death was a substitutionary sacrifice. And secondly, Jesus' death was a sufficient sacrifice. And that's what this meal is, is, is pointing to. So, it's very significant here. Jesus is doing this Passover meal with his disciples. And in the Old Testament, there's very specific prescription as, as to how this meal was to happen. We read about it in Deuteronomy. And at one point in this meal, as is instructed in Deuteronomy, the, the leader of the meal was to take the bread and the cup and to say that this is the bread of our affliction. This bread, this unleavened bread, is the bread of our affliction. And what that is pointing to is their affliction when they were in captivity in Egypt, to remember that they were in this affliction. They were in this time of, of trial and, and captivity. And so what God is wanting to do through the centuries is to, to cause his people to remember this time when they were afflicted, and now God has rescued them from this affliction. But Jesus does something very different in this Passover meal. In this one, here, this last Passover meal, he takes the bread and he says, take, this is, he doesn't say this is the bread of our affliction. He says, this is my body. And so Jesus is saying, he's, 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 he's ushering his people into a new paradigm of what it means to trust in him. No longer is this meal about what the Jews have endured, but now this meal transitions and is about what Jesus is about to endure for his people. 
And he tells them, take, this is my body. And then that would inevitably, certainly point the readers back to Isaiah 53, this great beautiful prophecy where it says that this suffering servant who is Jesus will be broken. His body will be broken for his people on the cross. So Jesus' death is, is a sacrifice. It's a substitute. Jesus is clearly saying that I am substituting myself for you where it was a lamb now it is me all right so you may ask and i think this is a valid question why why do we need a sacrifice why why is god bloodthirsty and why does god need to be appeased in a sense i think that's a valid question i was reading a book by tim keller that is a sort of overview of mark called the King's Cross, and I found his words on this to be, to be very helpful. And he made the point that all true love is really a substitute sacrifice. All true love. And he, he gave this analogy of, of anybody. Just imagine. I'm not talking, let me say right now, I'm not talking about anybody in this congregation, okay? But imagine yourself having to minister to somebody that is really emotionally draining and broken. Again, I reemphasize, I am not talking about anybody in this congregation, all right? Imagine yourself being in kind of a position of health and clarity and strength and having to minister to somebody that is just emotionally broken and needy. To go to that person, you have got to be willing to be emotionally drained and emptied out so that they can be filled up. We understand that, right? Right? I mean, we all understand that. Here, here's another analogy. Is that, is that, imagine every good sort of espionage, mystery, you know, suspenseful show, you know, anything that makes it big on Hollywood, and you got this innocent, unsuspecting citizen who's just minding their own business, and then there's this other person that's being hunted, you know, by some corrupt government authority. And then the person that's being hunted hooks up with the unsuspecting person and they need, I need your help. I'm being hunted. And, and so that, that unsuspecting innocent person has a choice to make. They can remain sort of safe or they can enter into that person's danger so that that person can be safe. But either way, they've got to leave. They've got to leave safety to enter into danger, right? So, so this, this idea of the strong sacrificing himself, substituting himself, entering into a place of pain and danger. It's just woven through the way things are. We all instinctively understand it. And that's because it all echoes this great work of, of Jesus substituting himself for us. And in this meal, Jesus is pointing. He's pointing towards this cross that he will endure in just hours when Jesus will take on our sin, take on our danger, take on our pain, take on our brokenness, and he will endure it. He enters into it and he absorbs the consequences, the punishment, the pain of it and extinguishes it and rises again on the third day over it. Friends, that, I, 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 re, 
I really want you to see that. That is the heart of the Christian message. Sin is man substituting himself for God. Whereas the cross is God substituting himself for man. Do you see that? That Christianity is not a, a moral way of living. It's not an ethic for people from the West. It's not good works. It's a, all of those things may flow from it. But at its core, it is God coming to rescue a lost, rebellious creation through Jesus' work on the cross where Jesus enters into the danger and the pain of his people to absorb it and extinguish it and defeat it. And this bread that we're going to take a little piece from in just a moment represents that, that God entered into our pain, that God entered into our punishment, that he took it upon himself. It's not just something that Christians do monthly as a sort of way of recharging their batteries. It's this most important meal that points to Jesus' work on the cross. And then secondly, Jesus' death was a sufficient sacrifice. Notice that he says there, this is really important in verse 24 and 25, he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, verse 25, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So what's, what's Jesus mean by that? What Jesus is saying is that he's not going to drink again until he accomplishes this thing that he says he's going to do, which is rescue his people, which is what this meal is pointing to, towards. So it was common in First, Test, first Testament or first century language to, to take an oath by saying that I'm not going to eat or drink again until I do this. In fact, we see this in Acts chapter 23. There's these guys who are chasing Paul. And they're wanting to kill him. And they say at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, 23, they say in there some way, we're not going to eat or drink again until we kill you. It's just a way in biblical language of saying, I'm taking an oath. And Jesus here is saying, I am taking an oath that I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I establish this covenant with my people. Now here's what's really, really strange. Uh, Interesting and something we must see about this covenant is that in the Bible, covenants, and in biblical times and in ancient culture, covenants, oaths, go from the lower to the higher, right? It's from the slave to the master. It's from the worker to the owner saying, okay, I will, I will, I will make sure I, I follow your you know, orders on this. I will, I will fulfill this. But in this covenant, it is God saying to his people, I'm going to do this for you. I am going to set the covenant, and I'm going to accomplish the covenant. This isn't a two-way street. It's not a contract. If you do this, then I'll do this. But Jesus is saying to his people, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to accomplish salvation. I'm going to make it happen, and I will not eat or drink again until I do this. And Jesus is telling us that his work is sufficient. It, it, it is what saves us. It's not our works. It's not kind of a strange mix of American karma. You know, I think that's where most people are kind of default. Strange mix of, of karma. Well, you know, I had a pretty good week. I went to church three out of four. 
Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, I, I helped a couple people at work. Didn't look, any, look at anything I shouldn't have looked at. Uh, you know, sent some money off to my favorite charity. All right, God, let's go. What do we got? Where, where's the blessing? You know, there's kind of this strange sort of karma thing where we think we put in a few good little works that God is now somehow obligated to bless us. And Jesus is saying that's not how salvation works because there's nothing we can do that would make us right with a holy God. And Jesus is saying that I am establishing the covenant, I'm setting the terms, and I'm accomplishing them. Friends, that, that guards us from legalism. It guards us from seeing ourselves as better than other people. It humbles us, and it causes us to, to look to Christ alone for our salvation. Let's keep reading. Verse 26, and we'll finish. And when they had sung a hymn, very likely they would have sung one of the Psalms, probably Psalm 113 through 118, where traditionally sung at the Passover meal. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, listen, these are, these are, these are heavy words. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Prophecy he's quoting from the Old Testament. I think that's, I think that's in Zephaniah, if I'm not mistaken. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Well, we'll pick up and look more at Peter's denial in a couple weeks, but isn't it just, I think, just this beautiful, strange encouragement that here, uh, right after Jesus institutes this meal that points towards his work on the cross for sinners, that we see Peter at his worst? Why is that there? I think it's there to be this amazing contrast to show us that we are not saved by the, by the relative temporary strength of our commitment to Jesus, but we're saved by the strength of Jesus' commitment to us because he puts Peter at his worst moment right after this meal that points towards Jesus as being the lamb who alone is sufficient to save. So here's my, here's my conclusion, my point, the thing that I, I'm jealous for us to do as a congregation this morning. I want us to, to look at this meal and to see Jesus. In fact, I want us to see in this whole book of Mark, in fact, I mentioned a couple months ago that this gospel of Mark has been wonderful for us to go through, but honestly, it's been a little bit of a challenge as to preach through it because I feel like every, every message is kind of the same. It's like the, the circus clown, you know, that gets shot out of the cannon. You know, that's the only, that's his only move. You know, I mean, he just, boom, he gets shot out of the cannon and he, I don't know if people actually do that, but they, they did it in the cartoons. And so he just crawls back in the cannon, boom, gets shot out. Craw crawls back in the cannon, boom, gets shot out. And I, I think that like 
the whole Gospel of Mark is just pointing us. It's just like one great message. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh, the King that has come to reign. Look to Jesus, not to yourself. He reigns. He's sufficient. He's good. Boom. <laughs> Crawl back out next Sunday. Say it again. Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh. He reigns. He's supreme. He's good. He's worthy. Look to Jesus, the King who reigns. Boom. Come out next Sunday. Say, Jesus. I mean, it's the same thing. Week after week. And that's good for us, isn't it? Because the whole point of Mark, the whole point of the Bible, the whole point of why you and I exist is that we would look to Jesus, that we would worship him, that he would satisfy every longing of our heart, that we would look away from ourselves, that as we're getting beat in the face by the world, our flesh and the devil, it would be like ammonia, smelling salts cracked underneath our nostrils, and we would see a fresh Week after week after week that Jesus is the king. He's God in the flesh. He reigns. He's defeated death. He's defeated everything that opposes me. He is good. He's triumphed over evil. He's triumphed over even my sin. And he reigns forever and ever and ever. And I'm jealous for us as a congregation to see this. And I think that we as Americans are particularly vulnerable to be looking at other things all the time because there's so many inputs in our life, man. And I know it's a challenge right now because you know what I got? You know what I got coming up to face me here in a couple weeks? College football season. I get it. <laughs> Not only does it wrestle with my soul, I can just see it on some of you guys out there. You know? Your week swells high or low. Just think about this for a second. Depending on how a 19-year-old boy in tight pants did the previous day. <laughs> and there, I mean, I'm being silly, but there's just so many inputs. And there are so many things that grab at our soul. And I think the challenge of the Christian life is to see Jesus and we see him most prominently and most beautifully in this meal that we're about to take. This bread that represents his body that was torn for us. And his blood that represents this covenant that he says, I will accomplish. Should put steel in the spine of the weak Christian like me be like a smelling salt underneath his or her nose so that we can see Jesus afresh. Well, let's end on these words from Charles Spurgeon. Have you heard of Spurgeon? <laughs> I know I don't. I read him a lot and I quote him a lot. It's been a few weeks. This is what he writes. Let these words encourage you, friend, if you feel weak like me. If you have to beat, beat down that inner voice within you that says, eh, not you. Listen to these words. See then that the weakness of your faith will not destroy you. A trembling hand may receive a golden gift. The Lord's salvation can come to us though we have only faith 
as a grain of mustard seed. The power lies in the grace of God and not in our faith. Great messages can be sent along slender wires, and the peace-giving witness of the Holy Spirit can reach the heart by means of a thread-like faith which seems almost unable to sustain its own weight. Think more of Him to whom you look than of the look itself. You must look away even from your own looking and see nothing but Jesus and the grace of God revealed in him. Friends, our, our brother Charles Spurgeon is not saying that faith is not necessary, but he's saying that even weak faith, even our beat up, scared, anxious faith can apprehend a beautiful Jesus. Let's do that today as we take this meal. If you're a believer in Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, you're welcome to come and receive this meal with us. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I am really glad that you're here, and I, and I would love to meet you and talk to you, and I pray that God may give you eyes to see and a heart to believe and trust in Jesus, and we're not going to try and force that on you. We realize that's often a process in people's lives, and this is a safe place to go through that process. But if you're not trusting in Jesus, really this, this, this is a meal that you should not partake in because we would not want you to confess and to proclaim something that, we don't, that you don't yet believe. Because when we take this meal, we are proclaiming that we're trusting in Jesus and that we're believing that he alone has made us right with God. So if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table. You can go to the to the server that is closest to you, hold on to your elements, and then as we um, all have our elements, Wayne will lead us to receive them together. Let's all stand and let me pray. Ushers, if you'd come and be prepared to serve. Uh, Father, I love these friends. I pray today that as we prepare to see Jesus, to take this meal, that we would see him rightly. Lord, there are a thousand things that pull at our hearts and our minds, that cloud our vision. And we need to see Jesus rightly. I pray, Lord, for those of us that have been beat up this week, that you would give us the kind grace of clear vision as we take this meal so that we would see what Jesus has done on the cross, that he was the lamb that this Passover meal was pointing towards, and that he has carried our sin, and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that your people would see that. I pray that I would see that afresh this morning. That I would remember it and that I would examine my life in light of it. That I would look at every area of my life and that I would bring it under submission to Jesus' rule and reign. And Lord, for my friends in this room who 
came in not trusting in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you'd give them eyes to see. And, and Lord, even now, if they're looking to Jesus as our brother Charles Spurgeon encouraged us to some 150 years ago, even now, if they're looking to you and they're trusting in you, if they're taking you in by faith, they're looking away from themselves and they're turning away from their sin, turning away from their self-trust and trusting in Jesus alone and his work and his righteousness. Lord, they're welcome at this table now, even today. Lord, I pray that you'd give them, give them faith so that they may behold Jesus. Lord, we come to your table now as humble confident sinners, confident because of what Jesus has done. In Jesus' name, amen.